This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. No miracle at Stamford Bridge. Real Madrid turned up or put under a little bit of pressure and then just showed us all the composure that Chelsea lacked. To be fair to Frank Lampard, his attacking midfielderless side controlled things and created chances, but those chances didn't fall to attacking midfielders because they weren't on the pitch. What now then for Chelsea, the rest of their season, and for Todd, can't keep out of the dressing room bowley. Meanwhile, not many people gave AC Milan a chance of making the semis. A lot of people wanted Napoli too, but you can't always get what you want and a stoic defensive display and one stunning Rafael Liao run it means we're not far away from a Milan derby semi-final. There's Liverpool's demolition of Leeds in the Premier League to cover, Leighton Orient's excellent floodlight failure promotion success, and our friends from Mundial join us to talk about five-a-side pick-up games. All that plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Nicky Bandini, welcome. Morning. The Racing Post, Mark Langdon. Hello. Hi, Max. And hello, Barry Glendenning. Hello, Max, and a belated uh, happy birthday. That's very kind of you. Uh, let's start at Stamford Bridge then. Chelsea nil, Real Madrid 2. Uh, Real Madrid through 4 nil on aggregates. A lot of chat, Mark, before the game about Frank Lampard not p- picking any of his attacking midfielders. But did he actually get this set up kind of right yeah, I, I feel like he did. I mean, it is, um, it's it's very trendy, isn't it, to just slaughter everything that Frank Lampard does and sort of laugh at every um, tactical, um, I suppose, idea and you know, team selection. But I felt like, and Carlo Ancelotti said it afterwards, that they were put under a lot of pressure in that first half. And I think that one of the reasons that they were put under pressure was because they, were, you know, Real Madrid weren't able to get into a rhythm um, in midfield because Chelsea had, um, you know, more, I, I suppose, sort of, defensive-minded players in those positions rather than, say, a, a Felix or a, a Raheem Sterling. So, I, I, yeah, I, I think that, that Chelsea played reasonably well. And even though those chances did fall, uh, Max, as you mentioned, to maybe players that you wouldn't have wanted them to in N'Golo Kante and also uh, Kukurea, they were really big opportunities. And even you know left-backs or you know central midfielders not renowned for goal scoring, I think would take that opportunity um, you know, a fair percentage of the times. And if Chelsea gone one nil up, um, it, it it really could have been an interesting tie. The problem was, uh, and you saw it with the goal, as soon as Chelsea did overcommit and start to push players forward, there was always the, the threat of Rodrigo um, and Vinicius on the break. Um, and that's what ultimately did for Chelsea. I, I think from, from Lampard's point of view, you didn't want to go gung-ho in the first 20 minutes, concede a goal and then the tie basically be over. So I think to, to, you know, to, to keep it tight and to try to just score first and make it an interesting game was the right approach. It was just that you know, Real Madrid are, are just much further along um, their progress than what Chelsea are. Mm. I think Trevor Trelleborough is still sliding, isn't 
<laughs> first goal. I mean, Mark said described people who have sort of laughed at everything Frank Lampard has done as trendy, which I think might describe, might in a way be a compliment to you, Barry, as a as someone who is now trendy. I don't know if that's <laughs> fair. If you if you've, I think we have laughed a lot at Frank Lampard, and I also and I kind of think we. We owe him a little bit from yesterday that he did set up pretty well. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think we've necessarily laughed at him personally, but more at this situation he's found himself in and the the mess he's inherited and whether or not he's the right man to to sort it out. Yesterday was undeniably Chelsea's best performance under him in four games, but it's a very low bar. They've lost all four games and they've only scored one goal. And that was a bit of a fluke, you know, to be honest. But he, he set up uh, pretty conservatively. It worked up to a point. Real Madrid still created chances. Uh, Carvajal played uh, or caused Chelsea lots of problems. And you know, Real Madrid didn't really have to exert themselves to, to win this tie over two legs. It was fairly straightforward. But if you know if if th- this is Chelsea, that we sh- they should be a lot better than this, you know. And giving it a go, if if getting a pat on the head for that is is what we're reduced to doing to them, you know. Oh well done, you you, you didn't get tonked. It's it's not great, is it? <laughs> no, and I suppose Nicky, there's there's this always this feeling about Real Madrid that that they are playing within themselves. They're just doing the right amount to win each game. And it's impossible to say, well, you know, had Cucurella scored that chance just before half time, you think the fans would be really on it. Would they have just said, you know, let's let's just do a bit more. Like Benzema and Vinicius sort of barely played yesterday, but it didn't matter. Yeah, I mean, just on the Lampard thing, I mean, like this situation that Lampard found, finds himself in, like that isn't something that he had some control over. I mean, look, it was, I, I, I agree that like it's ridiculous to judge Frank Lampard on, on this one game or even this tie because I don't think many managers are taking Chelsea past Real Madrid, frankly, right now. But he chose to take this job. He didn't have to take this job. And I think it was a very odd choice of job to take, honestly. Like, I understand the emotional pull of it going back to, to your club that you, you feel strongly for. But I think, put it this way, I, I think you can look at sort of stronger-minded individuals when it comes to these sorts of decisions. And, and for instance, Paolo Maldini, who turned down working with Milan many times because he said the project isn't right. Like, I'm not coming there just to be sort of the, the patsy, basically, to be the sort of nice face because everyone loves me of a project that's failing. And he finally took the job when he started to believe in what they were doing. And it's working pretty well for him. I think you can you can have that sort of strength of your own convictions. And I, I look, it was definitely a, a, not a straightforward job to walk into, given the, the mess that is there. But I don't think Frank Lampard gets a free pass as if he sort of woke up one day and someone had put him in that job. He chose it. That's so interesting. That's so interesting because I, I, until you've said that, I kind of always thought, well, he just had to say yes, didn't he? Like because he, you never know, you could win the Champions League, right? but but. Yeah, perhaps he shouldn't. Could you? I mean, you should be able to, right? Like, you've, you've, you've the team has spent what four hundred million or so, something like that, ridiculous, on on, on reinforcing the squad this season. Um, it, on paper, it should all work, but I, I, it's not like there was any evidence from the way they were playing under Graham Potter that this team was just like a tiny little sort of tweak away from from going on to beat. And I, I have to say that sort of the other side of this, I, I feel like there's been this sort of consistent refusal in Britain to acknowledge how good Real Madrid are. They won the Champions League last season. It was like, oh, well, you know, they just kept having these lucky comebacks. Like, oh, Real Madrid just sort of find these goals from somewhere. And 
and the idea that if Chelsea scored once in this tie, that suddenly they would come undone, like they have never faced adversity before. Even some of the coverage of City I've heard, it's like, oh, well, City, when they were thumping Bayern in the first leg, well, that they've pretty much won the tournament now. You've got to go through the champions, the team who currently hold it. Like, I, I don't get it. I don't get some of the coverage that Real Madrid get in this country. I think that, you know, they have quite a lot of evidence showing they're quite good, actually. <laughs> yeah. Barry? Well, just going back to Lampard, the... There seems to have been this perception that taking the job was a no-brainer for him because it was kind of a free hit, and no matter what happened, it, it if it didn't go well for him, it wouldn't be his fault. But I think this taking this job could do his future prospects of getting a half-decent managerial job irreparable harm because if you look at his recent record as a manager, in his last 14 games, he's lost 12 of them and drawn two. That's with Everton, that's with Chelsea. As we discussed on Monday, Chelsea have a very difficult run-in. There's every chance the players, you know, they're they're more or less pupils in class with a supply teacher in charge. They've nothing to study for. There's no exams coming up at the end of the summer. They could very well down tools, well, (laughs) down tools even more. (laughs) And um, have a disastrous run-in. and, and finish well down the table. Who, who's going to give Lampard a job after that? I, I don't think there'll be a stampede to his door when, when vacancies arrive, in, certainly in the Premier League or even maybe the Championship. We had a supply teacher once, and he walked into the room and he said, Hi, everybody. Uh, uh, my name is... And as he said my name, as he flicked on the overhead projector... Do you remember those? Do you remember the, like, yeah, the overhead yeah, yeah. projector? And just written on the overhead projector was... Guinea Bissau from a previous geography lesson, and the poor guy was totally screwed for the rest of time, known as Mr. Guinea Bissau. And oh god, what a tough gig supply teacher was. Anyway, more importantly, I mean, the thing about Real Madrid is, Mark, they showed with those goals, especially Valverde in the second, just that total calmness in the penalty area at that at the key moment in a football match where you just have to make the right decision, delay the pass, play the pass, whatever. And they just got it spot on twice. They, they absolutely did. And, you know, Valverde's had a difficult time, I think, in, um, you know, probably since the World Cup, really, um, both on and off um, the pitch. And so we haven't seen him on the pitch play at a, a sort of the level that he was showing maybe before the World Cup. But in that one movement, um, it was just absolute class, the way that he dance past um, those Chelsea defenders. And I felt from Real Madrid's point of view, you know, so often it's Karim Benzema that is kind of the different... I know Vinicius is playing fantastically well, but it's Benzema that knits it all together. And he, I don't know if he was struggling with an injury slightly, definitely wasn't at the level that Benzema can play at. And um, Real Madrid still found other ways. And it was sort of the third forward, if you like, really, in Rodrigo that was decisive um, in, in the overall... Game. I do think from a centre-back point of view, actually, that I, pre- I prefer it when Rudiger plays um, at the heart of that defence alongside Militao rather than Alaba. Um, I, I would say I think that Real Madrid, I think, look a, a more solid um, when, when, when it's those two together. But going forward, if you allow them space on the counter-attack, well, it doesn't have to be Vinicius or Benzema. It can be Rodrigo. And that has maybe been a, a difference from last season when obviously used to, Ancelotti used to play Valverde um, as the third forward and that he would bring in an extra central midfielder because they had Casemiro. Uh, be, it'd be interesting to see, obviously, and they're playing a 
in the semi-final, another level of opponent. We presume it's Manchester City, but even if it's Bayern Munich, whether um, Ancelotti sticks with that front three or feels like he needs an extra midfielder in there just to um, you know add uh, protection because um, whether it's City or Bayern, both have got you know huge amounts of quality um, that that can really hurt Real Madrid. I think Sip was saying this last week. Um, you know, one of the things that Benzema is one of his great strengths is just how well he vacates space for others, right? Like how well he knows how to sort of get out of space and, and get out of the way of others. And I think that's the thing. Sometimes you don't sort of see him having his his sparkliest game, his shiniest game, but he's made helped to make that space for either Vinicius or Rodrigo to get those runs and, and score those goals. What now for Chelsea, Barry? Look, uh, uh, failed to score in 18 games this season. That's the most games since 80-81 for them. Lost their fourth successive game for the first time in 30 years. Only FC Copenhagen have failed to score in more Champions League games than Chelsea this season. Frank Lampard said, I think the word broken is a bit much. Are they broken? Broken. Um, they have too many players. They need to clear out. Uh, they need... It. They should probably appoint a new manager sooner rather than later, ideally, you know, in the next couple of weeks, so he can survey the wreckage of the season, decide who's worth keeping, who who to get rid of during the summer. Um, they clearly need a centre-forward, whether that's uh, Romelu Lukaku or somebody else. You know, there's a story that Todd Bowley went in the dressing room after the Brighton game and said they were embarrassing themselves and apparently singled out one senior player for a particular amount of opprobrium. One imagines that will not have gone down well with the players. But it is weird that, isn't it? I mean, I mean, actually one insider reading, I think Jacob was writing about it, said it was all a bit weird. Well, it's, it's, it's weird in an English Premier League dressing room, I suppose. It's not weird in an American locker room, is it? Uh, it's quite commonplace, I think. So, but yeah, it's another misstep by him, you'd imagine. But he, I think he, even though a lot of what's going on is his fault, he does have a right to be angry with with this. You know, the the play. These are not Sunday league football. These are very good footballers. Whatever eleven Chelsea put out, they are all very good footballers, and they're just not delivering. I think they've just got too many of the same players. That's what it, it feels like uh, to me. You look at, uh, you know, like Mudrick and Pulisic, and then Raheem Sterling. Um, you know, as, as three of the wide players, have got others um, uh, as well. And you know, how many wide players do you want to play in the team if you've got? three really good wing-backs like what they've got already in Reese James and Chilwell. Kukure has not played as well as what he did at at Brighton, but they spent a lot of money on him. Even with the centre-backs, I feel like a lot of those do the same type of job. Like You haven't got one that maybe really impresses in stepping out from one of the sort of side um, centre-back positions. And then uh, Felix and Kai Havertz, and again, they're not sort of traditional number nines, they, but they like to play up sort of off the front, really, and sort of or play up and then and then drop deep. So just, and even Mount and Gallagher, like you, you know, they could be the same player as well, really. So it, it just feels like it's not only they've got too many players, they've got too many of the same um, players. And I still, they've spent all that money and they still haven't got a striker that you would, trust and I haven't got a goalkeeper that I would trust either and you know that's absolutely crazy really uh, Richard says how many times did Lampard pat Ancelotti on the back and was that too many <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a really long it was a long manly hug wasn't it 
Jonathan writes, how much do you think Olivier Giroud regrets turning down a move to Everton in January? Um, <laughs> so look, AC Milan are through uh, to the semi-finals for the first time since 2007. I mean, not many people, Nicky, thought they'd get past Napoli when the draw was made. They had 20% possession in this game, but they did defend brilliantly, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it really sort of bears repeating. I tweeted this last night. Napoli are Serie A's top scorers by almost 20 goals. Like they're, they're miles ahead of everyone in terms of goal output in Serie A. They were the Champions League's, um, and they still are the Champions League's joint top scorers with Man City this season. In the Champions League, the only team they'd failed to score twice against was Liverpool in the second leg, um, in the second game of the group stage, where it was a dead rubber and it didn't matter, right? So they scored at least two goals in every other game. And Milan played them three times in 16 days between the league and the Champions League. And they didn't concede until the 93rd minute. I think it's extraordinary. I think it's genuinely an incredible performance by Milan. And I think that I think that there's perhaps, to me, it feels like this sort of collective, almost sort of downplaying it going on at the moment where everyone's sort of looking around. I think there's there's understandable disappointment because Napoli was so spellbinding earlier this season. There's understandable disappointment of, oh, you know, we thought this team could really do it all. They could we could they could win the whole thing and 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 that sort of journey's at an end. But I think to sort of dismiss the idea that Milan could be a semi-finalist on merit when they are last season Serie A champions, when they did tactically, I think, just play smarter in in these games. They got some luck. Um, in the first leg, Kratzkele should score in the first minute. In this game, he should score at the beginning of the second half. There are, there are chances for Napoli in these games. It's not like they shut them down so absolutely that Napoli didn't have any chances. And of course, both teams in this second leg missed a penalty. But I, I still think what they've done, sort of handling that, is is really extraordinary. And And I think what it's sort of... There's, I mean, there's so many things to pull out of it, but I think what it certainly points to for me is Stefano Pioli over three games outmanaged Luciano Spalletti. He he was the one who made the adjustments, who made the little tinkers every game and and, and made the right calls over and over again. Mm. And Barry, in, in Rafael Leal, they have like the perfect counter-attacking midfielder. That run is just so much fun, isn't it? Yeah, he for anyone who didn't see it, um, he picks up the ball in pretty deep inside his own half. Sets off, runs and runs and runs and runs and goes past uh, two players or two and a half, cuts inside Amir Ramani and, and squares the ball unselfishly for, for Giroud, who just has a simple task to stab it home from six yards out. And Liao has been very good in these two games. And I believe, uh, Nicky will know better than me, that he hasn't had a great time of it since the World Cup, but seems to be hitting his stride at just the right time for Milan. I think this has been a, a sort of a bit of a mixed bag of a season overall for Liao. He was Serie A's MVP last season. And I think there's been times when he's looked like that and times when he when he hasn't. But I think definitely there was a bit of sort of post, post-World Cup um, uh, funk, you might say. There's one thing I just want to sort of pick up on quickly sort of uh, referring to the, the luck that I talked about in my opinion that the the two yellow cards to Anguista in the first leg were very harsh and Anguista then misses this leg Anguista was brilliant in the first leg I thought by the way and his replacement Ndombele gives the ball away for that goal so so sad for Ndombele he actually had a decent game didn't he but like that is a really bad miscontrol I suppose it's a long way away you wouldn't think oh this guy's going to set up a goal in a minute but it was it was quite Ndombele-like. Yeah, and it was also, to then flip it to the other side, it was very Milan-like. And I think this is sort of the thing. Can Milan win the whole thing now? Well, I mean, I think they've got a 
very solid chance to reach the final. They're going to be playing either Inter or Benfica. I don't think either of those teams is a team that they're incapable of beating. And I think whoever they face in the final, they're going to be underdogs against if they get to the final. They might lose those teams as well, but if they get to the final, they'd be underdogs. But I think what's actually sort of fascinating about Milan is if there's any team initially that I sort of feel like I think can win as an underdog is Milan because of that, because of how they scored this goal, right? Because Milan at their best have shown they can defend pretty well. They haven't conceded in the Champions League knockout rounds at all, of course. Um, and I think it's what, five games now going back to the group stage. Is it six? I can't remember. If you give them that half a moment, it's not just Leao, it's Brahim Diaz. Both of them can just go like lightning. Both of them can just make that run, make that breakaway. And and then it just requires someone to put the finish on it, which on this occasion was Giroud. But sometimes it can be them. Sometimes it could be in the first leg, it was Ben Asser. So they are a team that actually can be quite comfortable with the underdog role and with sort of a bit of um, backs to the wall because they know that when they need to hit fast, they can hit really, really fast. And so, yes, Leao is, is a player who thrives in these counter-attacking situations and, and I think when he does it it's really scintillating and exciting to watch um, On those penalties uh, Mark I mean Giroud missed that one uh, at nil-nil um, Alex Merritt the first goalkeeper to save a Champions League penalty against AC Milan since Jersey Dudek saved Shevchenko's <laughs> in the 05 shootout <laughs> Napoli should have had, an, had a penalty in the first half I, I can't believe VAR didn't overturn that one and then Kravacelia misses one with 10 minutes to go it's a brilliant save from Mike Mannion Mark, but it's a real shame that that didn't go in just in terms of we sort of haven't had a lot of entertainment yet in these quarterfinals. And that would have been an amazing last 15 minutes, wouldn't it? No, it feels like over the last decade, there's been so many great Champions League comebacks. And, you know, with 10 minutes to go, if that penalty goes in, maybe you've got another one. Stadium Stadium was, um, we would have been absolutely chaotic at that point. Um, Just in terms of Magnon, I mean, how good is he um, not only saving penalties, which he's very good at, if you, you know, we're talking about an underdog that maybe he's going to win a knockout game, having somebody that can save the penalties that he does is um, obviously an important part of it. I felt that Napoli, though, the crowd, obviously, they're a very important part of the way that they play, but it felt too sort of frantic at times and you know there was a lot of crosses just going in and that I mean Milan just wanted those crosses in and eventually they did score um, from from a ball into the centre but generally speaking it's a low percentage play to just keep on sort of hoofing it into the middle and when they won that penalty that was when they actually refused the opportunity to cross played a you know a, a, a more intricate passing and managed to get down the side easier so I, I, I felt like maybe maybe it was the crowd maybe just the occasion but it just a bit rushed from from Napoli and maybe didn't take their their time you know, it was enough time even when they were one nil down to get back into that game but um you know it's still I, I just hope that if you know, presuming they do go on to win um the Serie A title that, that it doesn't this doesn't sort of become a, oh yeah but it's only the Scudetto you know because it's still a huge achievement for them but this will feel like a, a bitter disappointment uh, just one player we haven't mentioned but uh, Calabria the uh, Milan right back I thought he was probably man of the match really the way that he defended Nicky on the, on the subject of Napoli fans has there been some sort of issue between like the, didn't 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 Spalletti actually sort of talk to the ultras to sort of say, come on, we need to get together and all be as one, which seems strange that the ultras wouldn't be happy with what's happening at Napoli at the moment, given how well they're going. Yeah, God, this is one of those conversations where I feel like we probably don't need the full like story of it all for the <laughs> podcast, but it's hard to distill really quickly. Essentially, that there's been like a long running sort of unhappiness with sections of the ultras towards the club's owner, which 
on the surface kind of extraordinary because Aria de Laurentiis took this club from bankruptcy, got them back to Serie A, and they've now been in Europe for 13 seasons running, which is the longest streak of any team in Serie A. But there's issues that go to the fact that he's not considered, um, well, he's not Rome, he's not Neapolitan, he's from Rome. Some people dislike that, some people dislike things he said about the city, some people dislike all sorts of things that have happened in his ownership. And recently there's been issues about security measures at the stadium and and um, also like a fan membership card that, that fans are supposed to sign up for to get tickets. And it got to a point where in the first game against Milan, which Napoli in the league, Napoli lost 4-0 to Milan. It was this shocking result out of nowhere. And it was played at home in a stadium which was almost silent because you had the ultras on strike and so they weren't chanting. And I actually think that is part of the story of them getting knocked out because I, I was thinking about what, what Mark was just saying and and um, the sort of the rush to cross. And I think the psychology of playing a team three times in 16 days is part of it. Part of it is you know each other so well now and you have ideas about each other and did some of that build a sense of panic among them? God, we haven't scored against this team twice in in, in two games. In that first game, the atmosphere was completely dead. And basically Spalletti, after the first leg away at San Siro, said, if it's going to be like that again, I'm got, I'm done. Like, I'm leaving. Like, I'm, I'm not hanging around. And that kind of pushed this sort of need for a rapprochement between ownership and the ultras. Aure de la Rente, the owner, took a photo together with some ultras, posted it on Twitter. But it was it was a big story, Max. When I say, like, there's a longer version of the story, the government were involved. The, the Minister of the Interior helped to broker this piece between de la Rente and the ultras. And de la Rente had been given a police protection. He'd been given, like, a police escort in the days building up to this because they were worried about threats and his security. It was, it was a really sort of specific and I think very sort of localized story that was going on between ownership and and the ultras but yes there was this sort of official coming together I think two three days ago now and it did result in a good atmosphere at the stadium just to say like I don't think any of it will will dampen the Scudetto party this is still the third ever Scudetto it's the first one since Maradona it's going to be bonkers in Naples it's it's going to be not dampened at all and they're 14 points clear. They're going to get that Scudetto. It's, it's not going to take away from them. All right. Well, we'll find out tomorrow uh, who AC Milan and who Real Madrid will play. And we'll talk about it tomorrow as well uh, in part two. We'll talk about uh, Liverpool's demolition of Leeds on Monday night. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't right Hold now. it in. Hold and our current faves. And Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST.
Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. So Leeds won, Liverpool six. Uh, Leeds have conceded five goals or more at home in successive games, which isn't great, Barry. Uh, no, it isn't. And it's very worrying. They're not in the relegation zone, but those two second half capitulations at home are hu- must be hugely worrying for Leeds fans. I mean, Javi, Javi Garcia, when he was appointed on 22nd of February, I think fairly underwhelming appointment. Started well, win over Southampton, lost one, drew one, won one, lost one, won one. You know, so they're beating Southampton, Wolves, Forest, drawn, good draw with Brighton. And now these two defeats. They have had injuries. Uh, Wilfred Nonto's been out. Uh, Tyler Adams, I think, is out for the season with a pretty bad hamstring injury that needs surgery. So they're big, big losses for them. But some of the defending for these goals is inexplicably bad. While it's difficult to point the finger at Ilan Meslier, who he just seems to have no competition for his place and he is pro he's a very good goalkeeper but he's also very young and he's also prone to a gaff and maybe is it time to take him out of the firing line because picking the ball out of your own net 11 times in uh two games <laughs> you know it's it's not good for morale is it and it was a very very good performance from liverpool and we haven't seen too many of them on the road this season i think this might only be their fourth win away from home in the league this season. Yeah, Leeds very bad, Liverpool very good. And uh, I think there's been some bafflement uh, in in certain sections of Leeds fans that Liam Cooper wasn't playing in this game and that Gracia doesn't seem to think much of him or rate him. Uh, Pascal Strike had an absolute nightmare. He should probably be benched after these two games and yeah not not looking great for Leeds but you know as I say they're still not in the relegation zone that Mark Liverpool looked you know dominated this entire game basically and when you see them like this it makes you think that maybe they don't quite need the squad gutting that we've previously reckoned or is that you know they've had one you know it was something like 40% of their goals have come in three games this season like this one the Man United game and beating Bournemouth 9-0 it's a sort of Liverpool season has been weird, but when they play like this, you think, oh, just a, one more player? Yeah. I mean, Crystal Palace scored five past Leeds uh, last week, didn't they? Yeah, I, but it's the all-new Roy Hodgson gung-ho Crystal <laughs> yeah, Palace, Mark. It is. I, no, I, I think that, that it would be a mistake if Liverpool um, sort of... It might actually not do them great if they finish the season quite well and feel like everything's, you know, um, you know going great once more and... Um, you know, it doesn't need surgery to that midfield. I, th- I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't read too much into um, beating Leeds. What was interesting was, I think, obviously Curtis Jones, um, because he's somebody I think that is being given an opportunity. And this is, if there are any positives to take from Liverpool, you know, being in playing out this season without too much pressure now in in the final matches, it is to see, I think, whether. Curtis Jones is good enough to play um, for Liverpool on a regular basis. Alexander Arnold playing, um, you know, in central midfield when Liverpool have got possession, and you know we had was it over 150 touches um, in in that game at Ellen Road. So that I, I think will be more interesting for me to see whether Alexander Arnold can move into that position. It makes sense to give it a try because Jurgen Klopp has, has spoken about how much money Liverpool have got to spend. It'd be much easier 
to buy a right back um, rather than a central midfielder. Midfielders cost more money. Um, if Trent Alexander-Arnold can develop in that position, then um, you know you you might save yourself um, you know fifty sixty million that that can be spent elsewhere. But no, I I still think that Liverpool need to replace Fabinho and Jordan Henderson in terms of regular stars. I would say. David says, "What is the name for Trent's new position? The inside deep lying full wing playmaker Deuter." And most importantly, what does it mean for the Premier League next season? Do you feel, Nicky, that I reckon sort of in 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 British terms, Trent Alexander-Arnold probably he probably takes up about forty percent of all discussion <laughs> about all football. It's it's very strange, isn't it? Why is that? Just because of the lot of syllables, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold. Yeah, you know, possible. Ends up being... <laughs> but you take my point. Like I feel like there are players who play whole careers who don't get mentioned on Monday Night Football or on this or anywhere else. And there are some players that just seem to like attract so much. There's so much discussion, so many column inches written about these certain players. Perhaps it's just his sort of abundant natural talent. I, I would be interested in comparing, you know, airtime on TV, podcasts, radio and column inchage, you know, say, James Tompkins and Trent Alexander Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not fair, is it? Yeah. Craig Cathcart's not getting a lot, is he? Let's be honest. You know, where are the deep dives into where Mark Albrighton can play <laughs> on both sides? I don't know. I mean, I asked you the question, Nikki. I don't have an answer for it, but it is interesting. No, I, I don't have an answer either. I do, it, it is large, though. Like, I do feel like you sort of hear his name being talked about lately, and it almost sounds like people are sort of talking about someone who. Oh, you know, he's had his heyday. Now he's over there. He's 24 <laughs> years old. Like, it's it's weird how he's being discussed at the moment. Like, you know, he's obviously a talented player who's who's already won incredible things in his career. Maybe he's just not having his best patch of form ever. Like, it, it's, yeah, it does feel like it's a very particular. I, I agree with you. I feel like I've heard so much big picture discussion about Trent Alexander-Arnold in the last few months. It does feel like it's it's a bit much. Um, great to see Ben Mee in the bright lights of the uh, Monday Night Football studio, presumably <laughs> talking at length about Trent Alexander-Arnold. And Kev says, Curtis Jones had to fully untie and tie his laces live on TV while 40,000 lead supporters screamed at him to hurry up. Can the panel think of a more anxiety-provoking situation? Because I had a mild <laughs> panic attack watching it. You would get it wrong, wouldn't you? You would just slip and go, oh, I've got to start again. Anyway, uh, in the EFL last night, uh, Laser Orient were promoted uh, from League Two uh, in quite fun circumstances. The floodlights went out at Gillingham's ground. So players were taken off the pitch. The other games continued. When the lights came back on, Orient had gone up yeah. <laughs> in that time. And the video, Baz, is great, isn't it? Of just Dillingham didn't care either. So no one's playing. They're just sort of, it's like the Simpsons football match. Yeah, I saw a clip on, on Twitter um, and it's just various Gillingham defenders tapping the ball to each other. Uh, none of them being pressed by any of the late Orient players who are more or less celebrating, even though there's still four minutes left. <laughs> Interestingly, under the tweet, quite quite a lot of people got angry about, you know, oh, it's a disgrace. Gillingham, Gillingham could earn more money. You know, some Gillingham could work on their goal difference and some Gillingham, if I, well, we don't need goals, we're safe, <laughs> we're fine. And yes, but if you hit finish higher up the table, you get more money. It's just... You know, it's this funny thing and people still managed to get really enraged about it. And even when the lights were out and the players had been taken off, so it was pitch dark and uh, 
you can hear the late Norian fans just cheer, singing, celebrating their their promotion. So well done to them. They were also laying every Gillingham pass that was going <laughs> along the uh, the back four. Which, that, that, that was that was my favourite bit of it. The Orion fans are laying. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a better way to find out you're promoted than in pitch black. Just at an away <laughs> end in the pitch black game doesn't matter. Anyway, also in League Two, good night for Northampton and Stephen, who's both won consolidate their places in the top three. Their nearest challengers. Stockport and Carlisle drew with each other. Harrogate, the only team near the bottom to win. Uh, in the National League, Wrexham beat Yeovil 3-0. They need one win from their last two and they are promoted. Uh, Luke says he'll go up from League One automatically. Two points separating Plymouth, Ipswich and Sheffield Wednesday. Plymouth were one down at Shrewsbury, eventually won it in the 96th minute. Ipswich needed a late winner at home to Port Vale. Sheffield Wednesday won at Bristol Rovers. So Plymouth have 89 points and 42. Ipswich 88 from 42. Wednesday 87 from 43, Plymouth have the nicest run in, despite being, or perhaps because they are home to Cambridge on Saturday. <laughs> Fucking terrified. We were robbed 2-1 at home to Wickham last night, but no one in the bottom half won uh, last night. Kevin says, can we have some Luton love, given their remarkable run to the championship playoffs once again? The only club in the top two divisions to shun gambling money on ethical grounds, fan-owned and run top three in a sea of parachute payments and with a bottom three budget Etc. Um, would anybody like to shower Luton some love? I think Max as well. You could add in the fact they're doing it with a former Watford manager that was sacked um, earlier on this season, um, you know, for not being good enough for them. So that will make it extra sweet. I think defensively, been absolutely outstanding under Rob Edwards. They've only conceded thirty six goals. Um, Who's that? Is that Mal Donaghy and and Steve Foster who are still? Doing I'm it. not sure. I'm not sure who the, <laughs> um, yeah, it's okay. the key Don't men worry. are um, for, for Luton. But you know, they've only scored 53 goals, which um, you know, probably wouldn't have you in third place ordinarily. But um, you know, so strong um, at the back. Playoffs are going to be tough. I couldn't believe I'd looked at the table this morning and I assumed West Brom were like mid-table the way their fans were moaning um, about a fortnight ago. And they're up to sixth now after a, a couple of wins. So um, it's going to be a very competitive playoffs. I watched Middlesbrough um, the, the other night against Norwich and they look very good. Um, so, um, you know, Luton, I, I'd, I'd still wonder if there's maybe going to be one team that, that's maybe too good for them in the playoffs. But it has been a, a remarkable story. And, um Nathan Jones obviously started it and then continued it. But yeah, the job Rob, Rob Edwards has, has done since he came in, fantastic. If uh, I've question, and you may not have the answer, but if Luton did get promoted, would Kenilworth Road be fit for a Premier League? Will Christmas? the Cola Dome be finished oh. by next season? Wasn't that the ground they were going to move to in like about 20 years ago? It's a good question. To answer your question, Barry, and I know this off the top of my head, we didn't just pause recording for a short amount of time, uh, <laughs> but I am reliably informed by producer Joel that uh, according to a BBC article, it would cost them £10 million in ground improvements. So still probably worth it on balance. Oh, absolutely. But I just wonder, would they, those improvements be, would it be possible to do them in time? I mean, it's it's quite a, a shout. It has a certain charm, Kenilworth Road, but it, it, which is my way of saying it's yes. a bit of a dump. I, I, it needs a lot of work. Yeah, well, it's, my, it's one of my favourite away ends. It's a great yeah. away end. You walk through people's houses. Maybe like all those people who live there can get their bathrooms done as well while they're going, while they're bulldozing that. You can have a wet room if you live around the back of that. Um, uh, Burnley aren't champions yet. They drew with Rotherham. Sheffield United almost certainly up. With them after a 1-0 win over Bristol City, Wigan kept their faint hopes of survival alive with a win at Stoke. 
And uh, worth pointing out regarding West Brom, before everyone yells at, at you, Mark, they still have a lot of problems off the pitch, even if things are going uh, okay on the pitch. And uh, it's a story we've covered and we will cover again, of course. Uh, right, that'll do for part two. Part three, uh, James Bird from Mundial joins us to talk about the latest issue of his magazine. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, let's talk to James Bird from Mundial magazine, their latest uh, edition is out. How are you, James? I'm really well. I'm really well, thanks, Max. How are you? I mean, good. We mainly got you on to talk about your dad's forensic love and planning of wolves, but we will get to that uh, uh, later. Um, cover story is about pickup football, um, which is it's it's I'm I'm not too old for it. Clearly, I know I'm not. Anyone can do pickup football, but it's, it's I've never done it before. Tell us what it is. Okay, so I think the reason that we did it was the last sort of like four or five issues we'd done legends, we'd done Maldini, we'd done Zidane, we did Messi and, and R9 and, and so on and so forth, and we just wanted to change it up. So I jumped into a car and travelled the country with photographer and art director to explore this weird subculture, which is pickup football. So it's organised football for complete strangers. It's not seven aside after work. It's not Sunday 11 aside. It's not even really grassroots. Um, most of it is organised online. And Barry, if you want to play football this afternoon, if you've got an hour spare and you type in London 2pm onto a couple of these forums or the sector leader app, which is footy addicts, up will come three spaces uh, at Archbishop's Park or four spaces at 2pm at Westway. And you'll arrive and there will be uh, someone, a host with a ball and bibs. And there'll be 14, 15 other people who have also done the same thing and are looking to play football. So it's sort of this weird place in between playing with your mates and not playing at all. And I think, Max, uh, like what you just said, it's open to everyone. So the brilliance of this style of football is that you can have... Uh, a veteran centre-half from Northampton who's played 2,000 games of football in their lives, coming up to play, be, you know, being on the same team as a 18-year-old who's just arrived from Bolivia. And all of a sudden, you've got to work out who plays centre-half, if you can speak the same language, how you're going to make a game of football work for your team. So this is like, um, when I was growing up, in Cambridge, there's this expanse of grass called Parker's Peace. And the first ever rules of football were put up on it. But like on a Sunday, we'd go down with our friends. And there might be like eight of us. And then people would just turn up on bikes generally and go, oh, can I have a, can I join? And you'd be like, yeah, you can play. Hang on, just wait for one more. And eventually you'd end up with like 20 aside. So it's a sort of a modern, slightly more sensible version of that. Yeah, I would say so. It, it's, it's like that, but more organised. So footy addicts who are sort of, they they sort of have the biggest community of 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 sort of these brands, um, and they have something like fifteen thousand active players per week. I think there's something like three a thousand games that go on um, at astroturf pitches all across the country. And I think what we wanted to do was sort of show the stories that come out from these games. So there's fifteen interviews in the article. And in that, you've got a 68-year-old who plays three times a week. You've got Chelsea Weston, who is only a very recently ex-professional. She was playing for Venezia and Bari last year, and she played for Doncaster Bells and for Birmingham when they were sort of the pioneers women's football at that time. 
You've got uh, a guy called Jason who only started playing three years ago and has played 700 games in the two and a half years since he first played. So you've got all these sort of brilliant people stories. Um, and the, like the name, the name of the article is Gods of the Astro. And I think the whole idea is that for an hour a week or maybe 10 separate hours a week, if you're someone like Jason, you get to not think about anything else and play football with a group of strangers. There's no strings attached. Whether you score a hat trick or you score three own goals in your game, you might not ever see these people again, so it doesn't really matter. But you've had a kick about. James, if I turn up uh, age 50, overweight, unfit and not having played football for 30 years and I'm on the same team as Chelsea Weston and the 68-year-old who are both going to be much better than me, <laughs> am I going to get bollocked for, for my ineptitude? Or I don't think you're going to get bollocked, no. And I think that... Because that, that's kind of what put me off playing five-a-side because there used to be a guy in the group who, if you if I... If I was on the same team as him, that was immediately my evening ruined because all he did was bark at me for not being up to his lofty standard. Well, I, th I think that that's part of the brilliance of it is that everyone's on the same page. Everybody knows that they're going to be turning up with people of different ages, of different abilities, of different genders, and it doesn't really matter. And I think Chelsea speaks about that really well in the article. The main reason that what she speaks about most is her turning up as a recently ex-professional and immediately in the sort of two minutes where you have do kick-ups before the game, she's starting to sort of plan where she thinks people should play and how she can use your attributes as well as Eddie who plays 68 and plays three times a week and her attributes. I think she spoke really well about that. There's also a couple of other people that we speak to that aren't from this footy addicts sector which is there's a guy uh who runs something called terrible football and <laughs> he he started that in, in bethnal green five years ago i think and now they've got terrible football games all across the world and he describes it really well as a celebration of mediocrity which is something i, I aspire to mediocrity yeah. <laughs> just I, i'm just curious about like um how I guess how it's managed if there ever is someone who comes along who's difficult because I, I definitely like know that experience from playing sort of informal football sometimes you do get people who either are taking it like ferociously more seriously than everyone else or someone who just is abusive to people like if given it's all strangers coming together like how is that how is that managed yeah so we went I think we went to about 10 games across the three days across the country and the only time that happened was at Westway in um, West London, which is sort of amazing. It's like the most concrete football can ever be. It's where the those Joga Benito Nike adverts with Thierry Henry and Eric Cantona were filmed. And it's quite intense, like the noise echoes and you've got the, the cars going across. And one guy was too good in, in one of the games and he started moaning at all the, all the other players and throwing his arms up in the air and saying sort of, you know, the standard's gone down here, the standard's gone down. And one of the players that we interviewed, Nicole, she went over to him. She was a brilliant player. She plays sort of 10 times a week, I think. She went over to him, spoke to him for 10 minutes and then sort of got him down on a level. And I think that's what's really nice about this community is that there's an element of self-governance to it. There isn't anyone really who has any seniority to it. So, And when people have to get along, when there has to be sort of self-governance rather than looking above in a hierarchy, you sort of have to make things work. And I think that, that that was the one time it looked like there was going to be a flare-up and it was just sorted out very quickly. I loved the, the guy you spoke to who was playing a game and then suddenly realised he was playing with Ian Wright. 
<laughs> was a bit starstruck, but yeah. Is that Ian? Oh, oh my God, I'm on the same team as Ian Wright. Yeah, and I think that, so I know that there's quite a few other um, ex-pros from the Premier League who play. I know that Darren Bent plays quite a lot. I know that Jack Wilshere has played. Um, and I think that's brilliant. That's great with Ben because he sort of he sort of said, he's like, at first, I thought he was just a really good footy addicts <laughs> player. And he had his snood on. It was a cold, cold night. He had his snood on and his hat down. And then, yeah, realised, Jesus Christ, it's it's Ian Wright. And I think um, I think Sean Wright Phillips has played as well. You do sort of get these like these sort of like golden nuggets, golden nuggets, these like magic stories that happen within them. Just be, just because anyone can turn up. Yeah, and look, that you know the whole thing about football is it brings people together, right? Whether you're fans or you're playing or you're playing like organised eleven aside, five aside, or this. And that story of the Welsh guy and the Iraqi guy. Tell us that story because it's brilliant. So yeah, that's um, Yaya and uh, Ben. And they met, uh, they both moved to Birmingham at a similar time, one from Baghdad, one from Cardiff. Both wanted a game of football, both got onto an online forum, I think, and then a footy addicts thing. They met on the pitch and they sort of spoke really nicely about how they had this connection on the pitch. And then they sort of started playing FIFA together. Uh, and then they sort of started hanging out more and, and watching Champions League games together. They now own a cafe together two years later. Um, and I think Yaya's um, going to be Dan's best man in a couple of weeks. So like this sort of amazing relationship nurtured from one person playing a through ball to another that worked. And and, and then they opened a cafe together in, in Birmingham. It's very sweet. They were very, very sweet. Yeah, it's a great piece. Um, and I am writing my annual, I'm going to start, you know, my, my 38th season of amateur football this season. And I just, I totally echo what you're saying about that, you know, I'm not thinking about, did my son drink the paint that he poured on his head yesterday that I should have put the lid on? <laughs> I'm just thinking, can I volley the ball back to the thrower? It does like, there's something about playing football that just totally clears your mind of anything. You're not thinking about anything else. And that is sort of the thing that keeps me coming back. Now, that last time you were on, you shared your dad's very detailed breakdown of the goals Wolves would score. Like he goes to each game, or no, he looks through the players and decides how many goals they're going to get. I, Remind me of exactly how it works and where we're at currently. Yeah, well, where we're at is he's completely useless at it. But the format was that he went through Wolves' remaining games and decided that we needed 24 goals to stay up and then listed each player in the squad and how many goals they would score. But crucially, this was before we signed Dawson, Lamina, Gomez. So it's it's a bit out of the loop, but um, Wolves, Wolves are playing better now, aren't we? Yeah. So what he doesn't keep up to he doesn't he just does it once, does he? He doesn't do it like game week by week. It was a one-off thing. His week by week thing is is ringing the local uh, phone in, the local West Midlands oh, football oh yes. phone in. He'll sit he'll sit he'll sit in the car on the drive and ring ring him up and tell him what he thinks. But no, I I think that that list that he made is outdated and useless now. <laughs> what a shame. Um, but look, uh, presumably, does he love Diego Costa? I mean, it just feels like that moment was sort of. Or, you know, it was a shit goal, but it was a sort of cult hero moment for Diego Costa at Molyneux. Yeah, I think we've needed a, a sort of new cult hero to cling on to. And he has completely embraced Wolves and Wolverhampton. He's constantly posting pictures of his kids in and around the city. He recently, I think two weeks ago, 
someone at Wolves told me that he texted the whole first team squad, say that all of them had to go and watch the women's team on the Sunday. And if they didn't go with him, then they had to dread to think what happened to them. <laughs> I think that, I think that bait, what's happened to Wolves in the last couple of weeks is that our brilliant players who can do brilliant things, who weren't doing brilliant things, have now decided that they are going to start doing those brilliant things. So Mateus Nunes has been has been wonderful. Jao Gomez has come into the team and played really well. Um, so yeah, I think I think next season could be interesting for Wolverhampton Wanderers. Yeah. I mean, it might not be, but it could be, and that's <laughs> <laughs> that's what keeps you going, doesn't it? Hey, James, that's coming on, mate. Thank you very much for having me. Beat soon. James Bird there from Monday Old Magazine. Buy it. It's great. Uh, a couple of AOB for you. Uh, Fergus Craig, the comedian, um, who's definitely worth following on uh, on social media, says, enjoying the latest Football Weekly as ever. Uh, Barry says he doesn't remember being very impressed by an Aston Villa performance, but am I right in thinking he once picked them out as outside title contenders? Or have I remembered that wrong? He then found proof. A tweet from August the 7th, 2014, which says, I'll obviously be tipping Aston Villa for the title again. Thanks for that one, Max. So, you know, you, you maybe you've never seen them play well, but you did tip them to win the title or get in top four or something in 2013, clearly. I'm pretty sure I did not tip them for the title, but I said something that Jimbo deliberately misinterpreted and and uh, then made... It, it became a running joke that I had tipped Aston Villa for the title. Obviously, I did not tip Aston Villa for the title. Why would I do that? I might tip them for the title next season. Yeah. Imagine a host misinterpreting something yourself said and then running with it for time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, James says, Hi, Max and crew. Greetings from Maryland in America. I thought I'd join the conversation about panelists' favourite phrases. I've been listening to the pod for about three years now, and two years ago I noticed Max's affinity for the word absolutely. After that, I couldn't stop hearing it. How he puts a tiny pause after the abs, pronouncing every syllable like a schoolteacher proving a point. The sound of Max's absolutely has become so ingrained in my mind that every time I hear it, I find myself getting angry. Anyway, thanks for the fantastic content. Keep it up. James, always appreciate the DC United shout-outs. Well, I will, uh, I'll, I'll see what I can do about that. Uh, absolutely. And uh, and how I phrase I try not to pause. Uh, Matty says, does Mark Langdon like potted beef? I reckon he does. <laughs> I, uh, I, don't, I don't hate it. It's not, not first. What is, what, it, what, I, what is pot? What is it? Is that corn beef? Well, I mean, I, well, sorry, I just thought it be beef in a pot, though. Um, is it not? I don't, I mean, I, look, you're the ex, you're the, you're the meat man here. Potted beef. No, no, I don't like that. No, sorry. I thought it was, you know, just, um, sort of beef in a pot. No, I do not like that. No, no. It's like oh. beef paste as far as I can, I can <laughs> tell. Um, That's how I thought you'd brush your teeth with that, Mark. Frankly, I'm just so disappointed. Wasn't potted beef as like a staple for midnight feasts and picnics in Mallory Towers and the Five Find Out was in the famous Five and various other Enid Blyton books? I don't think I've ever had it to be honest. Uh, wow. Next live show. <laughs> Next live show, Mark, Mark Langdon eats potted beef. Producer Johnson, we don't have that much time for potted beef. Uh, fair enough. Uh, finally, look, thank you to all the listeners uh, who donated to the listener, Simon, who got in touch about the walk in memory of his son and to raise money for Sounds United in Bristol. Uh, it is incredibly gratifying just to jump on that Just Giving page and see how many of you are genuinely good people, especially when uh, money is tight for lots of you. So thank you. What, what is the Just Giving page again, Max? It is justgiving.com slash crowdfunding slash Sands United Bristol Hike. Uh, and I tweeted it out after the last pod if you want to uh, dig that out. But yes, 
uh, one big community, this pod, and it, uh, I, I saw that and I was quite moved this afternoon. So thank you so much. Uh, and that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Barry. You're welcome. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Max. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove with Arif Islam. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett, and we'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 